Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. Over the weekend, we heard from a number of top U.S. officials trying to uh, dispel some of the tension around North Korea, saying we are not near a nuclear conflict with Korea. There's still are, with North Korea. There's still a lot of levers that we can pull. Uh, you had uh, you, the U.S.'s top general reassuring South Korean uh, president that we are going to try to reach some kind of peaceful agreement. Uh, to get us a better sense of where we are in all of this, I want to bring in Jack Devine, founding partner and president of the Arkin Group. He also is a former acting director of the CIA and founding partner uh, of, of this uh, security group. So, uh, Jack, I'd love to get your sense. How close are we to a nuclear conflict with North Korea? I don't want to be alarming, but it's been a long, long time uh, since I thought we were in a uh, situation where it's conceivable that we could have a, uh, a military confrontation that could end up in, a, in some sort of nuclear incident. Um, I think back to the Cuban Missile Crisis, we're not there. But, you know, in Cuba, they didn't have missiles on the I mean, they, they did. That's not, that's not accurate. We didn't learn about it until a few years later. So I, I think this is a very serious and threatening situation. I'm hopeful that we'll be able to walk the dog back, but uh, I think it's um, – I, I wouldn't minimize this at all. I couldn't do that in all candor. So uh, how do we walk the dog back? Well, I, I think, first of all, uh, any rational person would not want to get into any sort of military engagement, would, which could then lead to – a, a nuclear incident. I mean, there's no way. I mean, we have the finest military in the world, finest intelligence people. But I've been in the business long enough that even with all your preparation and the best equipment, things go wrong. I mean, even if the very successful bin Laden, uh, one of the helicopters, you know, crashed. I mean, we had a, an operation to try and get uh, the, our hostages out of Iran, and three of them crashed in the the desert. So there's no way you can have a military operation where a general can say, I give you 100% security here that we're going to take out all their their missiles. So I don't see how the military confrontation can end up with anything but a, uh, a catastrophe. So I think one way or the other, we have to go back to the table. And as you know, I, I've been putting forth the idea they try and go back to the six-party talks. But one way or the other, if we're not going to have a confrontation, we have to get back to the table. And while things may be taking place in back rooms, and I'm sure they are, uh, I haven't seen it uh, other than uh, the uh, South Korea proposing direct talks with uh, North Korea. So I, I think we have to get back to the table. I think we yeah. need to be strong, demonstrating with our B-2s and our military positioning. And I think uh, Trump is right to speak tough to them. But I think uh, all that aside, there's no way this ends without negotiations. So let's talk about who we're negotiating with. I mean, China has been pinpointed as the main sort of negotiator in this whole uh, business just because they could potentially cut off all global economic ties with North Korea. They seem to be unwilling to do that. And then there's a question, which I want to pose to you, of how effective would that actually be? I mean, could China conceivably uh, stop 
Kim Jong-un's efforts to build a nuclear arsenal? Remember, our, uh, our interests are not directly lined up with the Chinese. I mean, there's clearly some overlap. Neither of us want to see a nuclear confrontation. Certainly they don't want to see one in their area. But they don't want to see United Korea either. They don't want to destabilize Korea. You have to guarantee after whatever confrontation you have that you know what's going to happen the next day. So the Chinese are not in sync with our our interest. On the other hand, they have a lot of equities with us and we with them. Historically, um, I think they've under underinvested in trying to be helpful here. I think too many people over the past several years, and many of the articles that are written today talk about how key China is, but they don't talk about how you get the Chinese to uh, to do something that they're not convinced is in their interest. So there has to be a great deal of pressure put on the Chinese. And uh, it's one of the reasons, again, I think it would be important to get a group of people at the table. It's easier, it's easier to make concessions when you're in a group than one-on-one, in my view. And you have to have the world sort of with you. If you have the six major countries, and for those that don't follow, it would be Russia, South Korea, United States, and North Korea, South Korea. So you have, you know, the world sort of trying to resolve this problem, and uh, it's it's harder for everyone just to fold their hands. Yeah, where does I do think now that the North Koreans have tested and they've gone a long way, they may be, because of the economic pressures on them, might be more willing to... They're not going to abandon the program, anyone that's hoping for that good luck. Um, I think what we could hope for is that we freeze it about where it is. And, you know, you can't take their word for it. You have to have a verifying system, and you have to have an independent intelligence look at to make sure that uh, they're sticking with it. They made some progress the last time, in fact, some substantial progress with the six-party talks, but the North Koreans violated, and that's why it fell apart. They may be in a different position there, because they now have a much more um, powerful nuclear uh, capability now than they did when they walked away from the table. There may be some room here for uh, smart negotiations, uh, but I think we need everybody in the game. Well, talking about that, Jack, I want to get a sense of Russia, because I don't have a clear sense of where they come down on this. Would they be willing and eager to negotiate with the other five major parties? I think there's a couple aspects of it. It, They're a bit like the Chinese. It's not in their interest to see a... um, you know, an improvement of relations between North Korea, South Korea, and the United States, because if it improves enough, you, you could actually find, if there was ever unification, it would be a unification in favor of the South. So the, and the fact that they're able, that the North Koreans cause so much commotion, it keeps us distracted, tied up, our military forces. So it's not immediately in their interest. However, they are part of the human race, and nobody can afford to think casually about having a nuclear um, a nuclear event anywhere. So, and they want to be a player. I mean, yeah. they are a. They, they wouldn't like to hear this, but they're not a major economic force in the world. They're not even. They're not on the ground the force that they were years ago. So, um, but they want to be taken with with more respect right. at the table. So, if they're at the table, uh, if everyone else goes to the table and they don't, I think they'll shrink a little bit. So, it may, you may get them to the table. Yeah. Jack, real quick, how much confidence do you have in the current team, uh, the current U.S. team that's negotiating this? Well, I think we haven't as well. Again, let me come back. I'm not sure what's going on. I mean, I think we have very competent uh, diplomats and intelligence people. I just haven't seen much um, 
uh, discussion about the a negotiation aspect of it. I haven't uh, seen anybody putting forth, let's meet here, let's do this. Now, maybe it's going on in the back rooms. I'm hoping that it is. Um, but um, the emphasis seems to be more uh, how do you bring the military presence and how do you threaten each side and then lean on people. I, I don't see a format being constructed for uh, for discussion. And uh, yeah. I said, I'm willing to admit there may be something going on, but it sure as hell isn't grabbing headlines. Jack Devine, thank you so much for joining us. Jack Devine is former acting director of the CIA and founding partner and president of the security firm, the Arkin Group, talking about why we need to start negotiating with other major powers. Uh, right now, I want to talk about angry birds and just how valuable they are. I want to bring in Lionel Laurent. He's a columnist uh, for Bloomberg Gadfly covering finance and markets. And uh, Lionel, uh, do you think that angry birds are worth $2 billion? <laughs> <laughs> I saw this today in the uh, the Angry Birds franchise owner, Rovio Entertainment, uh, is planning an IPO probably next month. Uh Two billion dollars. They rely yeah. entirely on Angry Birds. What's up with this? I know two billion dollars, which would be about ten times revenue, which would be substantially above where uh, one of its rivals, Zynga, trades. Um, we shall see. I would just note that two billion uh, was what the company reportedly rebuffed about five years ago when it was offered that for a, for an acquisition. So it wouldn't exactly be a be a huge victory. But uh, it would still be a pretty toppy multiple for a company that, you know, they've they've proven people wrong. I think they've really milked a lot more money out of Angry Birds than anybody thought possible. <laughs> well, this but, is, uh, but, but have they milked money out of anything else, or is it all angry and all birds? It's it's. All, I mean, they've they've tried, and they have some other games, but but nothing to match it. And I think that you could, and they'll probably make the case that this IPO, if it happens, would help them fund other things, right? I mean, they've, they've had some tough, tough couple of years. The market's changed a lot. They've adapted to that. Um, they had to cut a lot of staff. So they had to sort of stand on their own two feet. Wait, wait, hold on funding. a second. The market's changed a lot for Angry Birds or for entertainment or, you know, like, where well, are they trying to branch out? So, so I think mobile games, that's, that's what's really changed. These, this is almost a, a, a decade old, right? So you have to put yourself back to what it was like when it first burst onto the scene. You sold your app for a price and that was it. Uh, quickly with, with other big hits like Candy Crush, the whole market moved towards microtransactions, free to play, the kind of situation where your kid grabs your credit card and essentially spends your, your hard-earned salary on, uh, on, on a little game. These, these became billion-dollar <laughs> companies. Terrific. Billion-dollar games. <laughs> billion-dollar uh, companies. And Rovio never got to that stage. And uh, it's, it's definitely adapted and it's survived. But I just wonder what it can show that's new in terms of the, of the future outlook. So do you play Angry Birds? I used to. You know, I'm, you I'm old did. enough. 
I, well, it came out. In I, my whole vision of you has changed, Leonel. In two thousand and nine, two thousand nine. I mean, you know, you you can't read Proust all day long, right? You got to unwind. <laughs> I guess so. so. I mean, do they have other games in the works, or are they just basically trying to uh, make more birds that are that are uh, varying stages of anger? They have other games. They uh, they put out a new game, I think, called Battle Bay earlier this year, and they have a new studio in London, whose whole mission is to make new titles that are not Angry Birds, but they're not expected to produce a new game till twenty nine. Which is the year, as I'm sure you know, that the new Angry Birds movie comes out, Angry Birds 2. Oh, of course, so we, I've been tracking we, it very closely. We are still in this weird limbo where we are still waiting for this kind of new Rovio to, uh, to hatch, right? And it hasn't happened. $2 billion. And, and the timing is sort of odd to me. So I'm wondering, you know, would this IPO be derailed if we see the weakness that we saw last week or the people you're talking to? I mean, is, it, is there a sense they're going to go ahead with this? They need to do something. I don't know. I think that, um, that there, are, there have been reports, right, of everything from Tencent potentially buying the company to the company floating a small part of itself. You know, I think as usual with this kind of industry, I mean, you – people aren't dumb. They can look at the market and see that the stock prices of of mobile game companies have underperformed post-IPO. This is a a volatile, tough, hit-driven industry. On the other hand, as we've seen from tech IPOs, there just seems to be demand, even for crazy valuations, right? Like like Snap, um, and, and even with Blue Apron's troubles, who knows, there might just be enough appetite for this. There just might be. Of course, Snap is bouncing back after the earlier plunge, talking about uh, Snap and one-hit wonders. It seems like this one-hit wonder is going to continue uh, for longer. And now its shares are up more than 7%. My God, they were down almost 5% earlier today after uh, it was revealed uh, that Temasek of Singapore had... uh, offloaded its holdings of this particular company. Lionel Laurent, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, truly, uh, I guess, you know, look, Angry Birds, it is an appealing franchise. My kids loved Angry Birds, but still $2 billion. Lionel Laurent, columnist covering finance and markets for Bloomberg Gadfly, coming to us uh, from London. Well, it isn't a day in markets if there isn't a fear about a bubble in exchange-traded funds. And I want to bring in uh, Eric Baltunas, who spent his life, basically, at least for the past few years, defending ETFs against the bubble fears. Eric Baltunas is a senior ETF analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence, and he joins us now. Eric, yet again, we get another story about record ETF inflows fueling Price bubble fears. That uh, headline was published in the Financial Times, and it stemmed from a statistic that investors have already funneled $391 billion into ETFs in the first seven months of 2017, already eclipsing the full year record that was set last year. So, Eric, does this acceleration of inflows suggest to you that perhaps people are getting over their skis and putting too much faith in these vehicles? Uh, well, no. I mean, and when you say I've defended ETFs, I don't necessarily like to be the apologist, but there's definitely uh, more people taking shots and just throwing out these things without using much context. I thought two better headlines for that FT article would have been Uh-oh. investors <laughs> demanding stocks fuels uh, fears of a, of a stock market bubble, or ETF record inflows fuels fears of asset managers' lost revenues. 
I think those are two better headlines than what they did. They kind of take, okay, all this money is going into ETFs, but all this money is going into the market anyway. Like, if ETFs didn't exist, it would buy index funds, or it would buy active mutual funds, and ultimately, you would own the same stocks. So I think that's what I get to getting gets annoying with me is that sometimes there's some laziness and, and some uh, conflating of just because money's going into ETFs means that, oh, there's a bubble. I think all you're seeing is that money is basically transferring from closet indexing to actual indexing. So, But it's ultimately only owning the same stocks. Uh, but the investors deciding to buy equities and faith in Trump and all and the Fed in the past, that's ultimately what is driving up valuations. Well, I guess that one fear is that right now when you have so much money going into the stock market through indexed funds, and you talked about closet indexing, in other words, active managers who essentially just followed the indexes, so are essentially were indexers, but charging larger fees. And I, that's been a fear and an accusation for a long time. But there's uh, a concern that with so much money going into funds that all track the same indexes, that companies that are unworthy of their money will get them, regardless of what their financial health is, but just by virtue of their being big and in the index. Right. Now, and then we got to use context on the fact that if you go back and you look at uh, the amount of money uh, or the amount of ownership of, of the stock market made up by mutual funds, it's about half, a little less than half. So there's still, again, plenty of people picking stocks based on valuations. Um, I also think that, look, active managers are now out saying that, like, ETFs and index funds are bad for capitalism. Um, and, you know, look, I mean, there, there's some case we made that an active manager can evaluate a stock better. Um, and if that's the case, an investor should pick an active manager. I think part of the problem with this whole thing is that Investors are just voting with their feet. I mean, I think what really has caused a lot of the movement is low cost, one, but two, disappointment in 2008. I think a lot of people thought that their active fund would have saved them some of that uh, uh, 35% loss, but it didn't. In fact, two-thirds of active managers underperformed in 2008. And I think that's partially the investor's fault. Active managers know that investors can't tolerate a lot of tracking error, and they have to buy these stocks. So ultimately, their hands are tied. In the end, investors really want the index anyway. Um, right. And so they're driving all of this. So uh, you put out uh, research recently looking at where these flows have been going, and you showed how they're going to Vanguard and BlackRock overwhelmingly. And does this mean that you expect to see some of the smaller ETF providers uh, close up shop or get absorbed by the bigger, by the bigger players? Yeah, you know, I have this uh, thing I use where, like, you know, the old news is uh, active-passive. The new news is um, high-cost to low-cost. The future news is three companies manage 95% of the assets. Um, so, yes, you're going to see a massive consolidation. We just saw PowerShares is on the verge of buying Guggenheim, which uh, took a good, juicy, uh, smart beta issue. off the table for active shops who need a passive game, by the way. But ultimately, yes, you're going to see a ton of consolidation. I think what's going to happen is the next sell-off, there's going to be a whole uh, – this is where a lot of this is going to come to light, and a lot of managers are going to be forced to team up in order to compete with the Vanguard and BlackRocks of the world and um, with those low fees, you need scale.
Eric Balchunas, thank you so much. And, and, you know, honestly, when I say an ETF defender, I find that a lot of our conversations end up being, Eric, you calling me and saying, you know, actually, let's reframe this. Let's look at what the, where the money is actually going. This is just a vehicle uh, that people can sort of invest in the underlying assets. So it's always enlightening uh, to speak with you. And uh, you're looking at the technicals, not just uh, blindly uh, defending. Eric Balchunas, Senior ETF Analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. Uh, and again, those bubble fears will be uh, ongoing, I'm sure, especially uh, if we do not get another major downturn. You'll have people saying, oh, they're untested. With all of the news that's coming out of North Korea and Virginia, there has been less talked about one of the most important things that will happen probably this month, which is the beginning of the renegotiation of the North American Free Trade Agreement, uh, known as NAFTA. And here to give us a sense of exactly what's at stake, and it potentially is quite a bit, is Mike McDonough. He is a global director of economic research and chief economist for Bloomberg Intelligence, and he joins us in our 1130 studios. Uh, Mike, uh, just can you lay out what the main issues will be, because we've heard a lot about agriculture. We've heard a lot about dairy. Yeah, you know, well, it depends on who you ask, I think, a little bit, right? If you if you look at the, the trade representative, they actually put out a kind of preliminary report a month or two ago on what their expectations were. Uh, and the key things were that they expected to maintain the trade-free tariffs for agricultural and industrial goods, uh, and instead focusing on things like uh, – IT, financial sector integration, uh, things like this, which which all make sense and would be a good thing to add to the deal. But when you listen to the Trump administration's rhetoric, it has mostly been trade deficit, trade deficit, trade deficit, be it with China, be it with Mexico, Germany, whoever. Uh, and what's interesting, when you actually look at Mexico and you say, well, where, wh- how, why are we running this trade deficit with Mexico? If you actually break it down by product and you look at transportation equipment, the deficit in transportation equipment between the U.S. and Mexico is actually larger than the entire U.S. trade deficit. So meaning if you strip that component out, there, we would actually be running a trade surplus with Mexico. So is this basically the flip side of Ford and GM manufacturing their cars in Mexico it's, or car parts? It's two things. It's uh, exactly what you just said, uh, car companies building their cars in Mexico and bringing them back. And it's also uh, auto parts being produced in Mexico that are being used in cars that are assembled in the U.S. When you when you break it out by state, the two largest states with the deficit are Michigan, and obviously cars, and California, which is cars is number one, but then computer parts is number two. But why, why I went into all this is if you're President Trump and your biggest concern is the trade deficit and you're renegotiating, renegotiating NAFTA with that in mind, it's hard to see how you're going to ignore this sector. But that's kind of what was indicated by the, uh, to me at least, when I read the summary that the, uh, the trade representatives had put out. So I'm I'm just trying to wrap my head around this because we were talking before the segment that these negotiations have a pretty accelerated time frame, that there is some expectation of a renegotiated deal by the end of the year, which seems actually pretty ambitious given the fact that there are so many moving parts and there is so much political capital that President Trump has uh, tied up in this. Can you give us a sense of what the competing factions will be, uh, whether, you know, how many people are going to be involved with this, where these negotiations are going to be held. 
Well, I think I think there's a round being held in each country, but I think they they have this end of year deadline. But I think even uh, Lighthizer himself has said he's not holding any commitments uh, to necessarily meeting that deadline. So I think you know the baseline. What most people think is this is going to be some very minimal changes that actually occur to NAFTA. And if you look at how strongly the Mexican pesos rallied, it's had been the strongest performing currency year to date, it may still be. Uh, And this is because a lot of the fears that people had uh, have alleviated a bit. Well, but but this idea of the auto sector and the auto parts sector, though, raises the specter of some more damage to Mexico's economy, because you were saying that this accounts for, what, 3%? Yeah. Of their total GDP? Long term, pending how this, if, if, if they were to go after that sector, uh, you could have, uh, the, Mexico's long term growth potential could come down a bit given how uh, the magnitude of this to Mexico's GDP. And it's been growing every year. It's becoming a more important part of Mexico's economy. You know, I, you know, it just surprises me that there isn't more of an outcry from GM and Ford because, you know, in in back office rooms, they're saying, look, we want to provide cheaper cars. We provide labor to Mexico. Mexico's economy grows. It helps us because then we can sell our cars. Uh, if we br- make everything in the U.S., it would cost us a lot more. So far, to, yeah. so far, there's no reason to be necessarily, right? All signs are pointing to that, that there's going to be relatively minor changes to this agreement. I think the Trade representatives had gone in and said the process is going to be do no harm. Uh, so, you know, President Trump hasn't been that outspoken uh, about the NAFTA renegotiations recently. So I don't he's been more centered around China. So I think that that's why you haven't heard as much about this. The baseline view is right now that this is going to go over uh, relatively minimal changes again and, and pains free, pain yeah. free. Talking about China, last night I saw the headlines about China underperforming in July with, with respect to uh, expectations uh, about how much their economy grew and how much their industrial output grew. People seem to not care at all today. Yeah, and I think that's the right thing, actually. I wrote about this in my my macro musings today. And uh, the fact is, China had a much better than expected first half of the year. Uh, And Ending that, they had a much, much, much better than expected June. So you saw a little bit, you saw the data come back a little bit in July. When you look at what happened in June and what happened in July, what it really is pointing to is a a bit of a return to normalcy or or a moderate slowdown in growth. So, you know, everyone expects China's GDP growth is going to decelerate for the remainder of the year. The thing is, it hadn't actually done that yet. So now it's finally showing signs that it will start to decelerate a bit. Although you had the Statistics Bureau coming out and saying there are hidden risks and their problems out there. You so know. so the, the Statistical Bureau basically said what we've been talking about on the show for <laughs> I don't know how many years. Everybody, everybody, everybody knows there's hidden risk, right? You, have, you do have a, you're, you're going to have a moderate slowdown in economic growth in China. And another important thing to keep in mind is you have a, a twice a decade leadership transition occurring uh, later this year. Uh, they're going to do whatever they need to do to maintain stability around that. They're going to re- let growth decelerate a bit because that's what everyone expects. It's still even above the six and a half percent target. But there, if it looks like it's going a bit slower than that, then, you know, you could see reverse, reversal of some uh, tightening that had taken place earlier this year. Who doesn't know about the hidden risks? Mike McDonough, thank you so much for joining us. A pleasure as always. Mike McDonough is Global Director of Economic Research and Chief Economist for Bloomberg Intelligence based in New York. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Pim Fox. 
I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.